Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. And see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Let's join together in pastor's prayer this morning. Would you just join with me silently as I pray out loud? Dear Heavenly Father, we come this morning to declare that you are a gracious, loving God who has created us that we might enjoy you. We come to celebrate your presence and to express our love for you in worship. You are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. And all that we have comes from your hand. You have not denied any substance or good thing from us. And in your wisdom, you have determined our days and years and we count them with joy. We come this morning to lift up the name above all names, Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, the perfect sacrifice and the one who earned our righteousness. In him we have our assurance of salvation. We declare that there is salvation, there is salvation in any other name than Jesus. And let us boldly proclaim to all nations, tribes, and peoples that through Jesus, reconciliation is made with the Father. We also proclaim that he will return again for his bride, the church of which we belong. We come to give thanks for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who emanates from both the Father and the Son. By him, salvation is applied, and from him, assurance is given. To him, we owe our strength in fighting the constant battle against sin. And to the Trinity this morning we give allegiance. And join us this morning as we sing and pray and listen to the word. Work in our hearts that we may see your beauty and your majesty. And let us respond to your kindness that it may lead us to repentance and restoration. In the name of Jesus, the precious Son, who is our advocate, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Luke 15. Last week we finished our series on kingdom living and the sacrifices that's required of a disciple of Christ. Today we're going to begin a three-week study on Luke 15 entitled, The Pursuit. In chapter 14 of Luke, Jesus details the cost of discipleship as we've been doing these last six weeks. And now Luke in chapter 15 will contrast God's requirement for believers with the comfort and encouragement he offers to sinners. Turn with me to Luke 15, if you would, the first two verses. And as we come to this passage, we find that Jesus is being criticized for befriending the lost. Look at it, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The context of this criticism is that the religious leaders considered it wrong 
and very inappropriate to associate with what they would call the undesirables and the outcasts. Tax collectors were considered scum and collaborators with the hated Roman occupation, and they were also thieves who, under the guise of authority, would rob the people by taking more than what was required under the Roman law. A sinner is one by whom they believe violates the moral laws of God, but more so the standards that the religious leaders had determined that they were to follow. In other words, these religious leaders had very hardened hearts towards the loss. They suffered from the very problems that you and I discovered last week concerning those who do not share their faith. And you may remember that we said one of the reasons or the reality check of why we don't share their faith is because we either do not fear God, we do not treasure God, or we're guilty of not loving others. And you may remember the little YouTube video that we showed of Penn Gillette where he said, how much do you hate someone if you're not going to share the gospel with them? And that was a very eye-opening statement. Here's an atheist saying, why are you not proselytizing? By not sharing your faith, you're actually saying, I don't care about you. You hate others. These religious leaders were very guilty of that. You see, you and I need to be reminded that kingdom living requires the Christ's follower to give away their faith. And we give away our faith to fulfill God's purposes of reconciliation. And though our faith is personal, it's not private. We're to share it with others. We also had gave some steps that you and I could take to boldly share our faith, which included befriending those that need Christ, especially including those who are different from us. And I shared a little bit of that last week, and I appreciate there were several of you that came to me and says, I was glad you said that. We need to be a church that's opening to accepting people of all walks of life. We need to be the type of people that befriend people that are different from us. Those that we consider unloving. Those that may be smelly or whose life is miserable. Because if we're honest, many of us at one time were like that ourselves. To answer his critics, Jesus shares three parables that we're going to see in Luke 15 to demonstrate God's desire to reconcile with those sinners, those very people that the religious leaders hated. As you may remember from last week, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. These parables will show how God will go to great lengths to reconcile a sinner to himself and that he actively searches finds, and cares for the lost, those that need him the most. The first parable, if you're looking at Luke 15 in your Bible, as you can kind of see how it's laid out, the first parable is about the lost sheep, which not only show God's concern for the lost, but also his tender and protective care of those that belong to him. The second parable, as you go down, is about the lost coin. A woman has lost a coin that was worth a day's wage. This parable demonstrates God's effort to find the lost. And then the third parable is about the prodigal son. And it demonstrates God's wonderful grace and mercy that he freely offers to those 
that have rebelled against him, or in the words of Dustin Kennesrew of the song we just sung, those with rocks in their heads. There's many of us that were out there that had rocks in our heads. What these three parables have in common, though, and you need to notice this, and if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. What those three parables have in common is that something of value is lost, but then restored, is found, and the characters respond with great joy and then invite others to celebrate them with them. And that's the key to these three texts as we go through, is that something of value was lost but restored, and they respond with a joy and an invitation for others to celebrate with them the reunion, the reconciliation. First, before we go on, I wanted to find what a parable is. For many of us need to understand what a parable is. First, parables are simple stories with a single point. We need to understand that many times we take parables, and the medieval church was very good at trying to find different layers of this little onion, and they would assign meanings to all sorts of things. Well, that's not what a parable is. It's a simple story with a single point. They consist of spiritual truths found in ordinary stories that we would hear. In other words, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They can be a proverb or a profound or obscure saying or an illustrative comparison. They were usually illustrations taken from everyday life that Jesus used to make a point that they could understand. But this is what's important to understand also about parables, and here's where we can go astray if we do not remember how to read them correctly. You see, parables were a way of telling a story that calls for response on the part of the hearer. So as we read these parables, you've got to remember we're listening with the ears of those that are hearing. And the key to understanding the parable lies in discovering the original audience to whom they were spoken. In this case, the hearers were religious leaders who had hardened their heart against people. To them, people really didn't matter. What Jesus shows, though, that he is a friend of sinners. He will sit down with them. He will communicate with them. He will eat them. He will befriend them. Jesus had said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Paul also declares that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We should also be reminded that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And his response to that need was to tell his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into that harvest. And that's where you and I are. As we look out, we're to have compassion on people. We're to see that it's ready to be picked, and God has called us to be those laborers in the field. Pastor Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Community Church near Chicago writes that lost people matter to God, and they should matter to us as well. They need to matter to us. We must be careful that you and I, that we do not harden our hearts towards others, and that keeps us from sharing our faith. 
For this series, we're going to focus on the parable of the prodigal son. The story consists of three characters, the younger selfish son, the forgiving father, and then the older, what I call the bitter brother. Join with me as we look at the selfish son as we introduce this character in verses 11 through 16, where it says, And Jesus said, There's a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Father, we just pray that you open up your word this morning to us. I pray that you help us to understand the parable here. Speak to our hearts. As we're 2,000 years removed from the original hearers, there are many here that today that may have the same hardened heart. May we find ourselves in this story and what you've called us to do and to be. Lord, I pray that we would just speak words that edify. We thank you for this opportunity in your name. Amen. Well, here's an observation. There's several things here that would have been very shocking to the original hearers, the religious leaders, as they listened to this story. As you and I have read it, this is so familiar. There's been messages, there's been cartoons, there's books, there's movies, there's all sorts of things. But we need to see this from a religious leader, from a Jewish first century person, as they are hearing Jesus tell this story. And there's some things that would be very shocking to them. The first one, number one, is that the son's insistence that he receive his inheritance now. He goes to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Give me what I deserve. The shocking thing is that under Jewish law, the younger son would only receive about a third of the state with the older son receiving a double portion when the father died. What he's doing here, though, is that typically he would not get that until the father had passed away. What he's looking to do is to sever the relationship between him and his father. In other words, he's saying, Father, you're taking too long to die. I want that money now. This would be very, very shocking to the Jewish listeners. The second thing that would be very shocking to them is that the father graciously conceded to his son's requests. He gives in, and he divided the property between them. Now, the father could give it to his sons before, but it was usually highly discouraged to do so in that society, as he would put himself at the mercies of his sons. And then he divided it between them in verse 12, indicating that the father gave both of his sons their inheritance, and now he's living at their whim, so to speak. The third observation that would have been shocking is that the son then went and sold his property and left the country. Uh, as we go on, he says, not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a country. What he did is he went and he sold his stake. But see, the seller could not get it until the father died. Even though the son had it, he still couldn't do much until his father died. It was a fire sale that he would have brought him a lower price. 
In other words, he'd have to sell it, and the person says, well, hey, I can't get it till your father dies, the rest of it, so I'm just going to give you a very little bit amount. The son was more interested with immediate gratification rather than getting the best possible price. You see, the thing is, family lands were not to be sold or transferred out of the family line. We see that in the Old Testament in Leviticus. God commands the Jews that your land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. It was one way he made sure that poverty did not follow generation after generation, for they would always be able to have their land. John MacArthur writes concerning this passage, that everything about the demands the boy made cut against the grain of the Hebrew society's core values. As they're listening to the son's demands and the father's response, and then what the son does, this would have just put them on edge. The son should have never asked for that. The father should never have given to him. And the son should never have sold his property. Essentially, the young man is saying, I want my freedom, I want fulfillment, and I want my fun now. I want out of the family is what he's saying. He didn't care about his family or its legacy and its lands. He didn't care about his children or his, or his grandchildren or so on and so forth. He would leave them destitute once he sold all the land. He doesn't care about the cost. He wants what he wants and he wants it. Now, have you ever run into somebody like that? Have you ever been somebody like that? Typically, that what puts us in sometimes the situations that we are. You see, the selfish son here is guilty of breaking the fifth and tenth commandment with the sons of dishonoring his parents and also covetousness. And for extra, we can throw in the first commandment by setting himself above God. This man... This selfish son is not someone that you want to emulate. The religious leaders listening to this story would have set their teeth against this young man. And to be honest, they wouldn't have thought much of the father for giving in to that also. But it goes on. Another shocking thing, the fourth shocking thing, would be that the young son's pursuit of pleasure eventually comes to an abrupt halt. For he squandered his property in reckless living. He did not go and invest it. He did not go and buy another piece of better property. He did not do anything to, to continue his living. He just went and spent it all on himself. Reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. He got everything he wanted, but in the end, he wound up empty. Eventually, his personal choices of cashing out, leaving, and squandering away his money, and providence, the circumstance of a famine, leave him destitute. We see personal choices and God's providence working together. I'm not sure if you've ever been in this situation, but it's not good. I haven't done exactly what this prodigal son, but I've been in a place where I didn't have much. Choices and circumstances had left me empty. This young man finds himself. For now he has no money, no family, no prospects, and he's suffering 
in a distant land with no one to help him and no friends. Fifthly, he finds himself employment and envious of dirty animals. Look at verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him what? Anything. See, he's desperate. He's desperately looking for food and employment. He finally finds work at a farm taking care of pigs, which is very degrading and unlawful for a Jew. In Leviticus chapter 17, God commanded the Israelites that they may not eat of the pig because it parts the hoof and its cloven foot. In other words, it is ceremonially unclean. Not only should they not eat it, they should not even farm them. They should not even raise them. But yet he finds himself working at a pig farm. And I don't know if you've ever worked at a pig farm. Don's uncle did. And we lived in a town where there were many pig farms. And though they were outside of the town, there were certain parts of the year and day when the wind would start to blow from that countryside that doesn't matter how far into the city you would have, all of a sudden you would start smelling. This is not a place that many of us would choose to live, but yet for a Jew, this had to have been the worst. Not only did he lose all of his money, not only has he squandered it all, but circumstances and choices had led him to the place where he cannot find any help and he finds himself in a worse situation than he ever thought he was. Ironically, the pigs he takes care of have better food than he does. This is a very shocking story to the Jewish leaders. They would say, what is with this young man? Now we're going to find out more of the story as we go on for the next few weeks. But there's something I want you to understand as we look at the selfish son. You see, the thing that we have to understand as we look at this parable is that this is not a fairy tale with princes and princesses and frogs. John MacArthur writes that this parable of the prodigal son is not a fuzzy, feel-good message, but it's a powerful wake-up call with a very earnest message. Jesus is setting these original listeners on edge and he's pointing them to something that's going to happen. And in it, he's trying to teach them a lesson. And it is not a very fun tale to begin with. The second thing that we have to understand from this parable is that getting what we want is not always desirable. Have you ever gotten what you want and found out that's not what you want at all? Be careful what you ask for because you might get it, that old idiom. What we must understand, as this young man found out, is that sin is a hard taskmaster. This young man sinned against his father, he sinned against his family, and he sinned against his God. Sin is a hard taskmaster. One unknown writer has observed, and listen to this quote, Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Once again, let me get this for you. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more 
than you want to pay. Many of you hearing that phrase, that little quote, can say, that's my life. Sin has cost me my choices and the circumstances that I have lived in have cost me much more than I ever thought about it. These things have taken me so out of the way of which I thought my life was going to go. And we need to recognize that sin will cost us a lot. Getting what we want is not always desirable. And then the third thing I want us to understand is that this parable demonstrates the pain of a father. Yes, the father graciously gives his son what he asks for. But John MacArthur, again, writing about this father, writes that this father voluntarily suffered what is arguably the most painful personal agony of all, the grief of her tender love rejected. He arguably voluntarily experienced the personal painful agony of all, grief of tender love rejected. But you and I need to be careful not to be too harsh with this selfish son as we think about him. I can imagine the religious leaders begin the side conversations. Can you believe he did that? I don't understand. What are you talking about? You can imagine the same way as we read these stories. You and I have this type of hardened heart when we reach people and we see people in need and we say, you know what? They deserve what they got. It's their own personal choices and it's their own circumstances. That's why they're homeless or that's why they're struggling with this addiction or this is why their life is all messed up and their relationships are destroyed. They deserve it. They got what they deserve. Many of you and I have been guilty of that type of hardened heart towards others. Saying, I'm not going to lift a hand. I'm not going to help them. I don't know what they'll do with it. But you and I need to be careful not to be harsh with this selfish son. Because like this father, so was our heavenly father treated. You see, this story is similar to the first parents, Adam and Eve. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis. For this story does not begin in Luke 15, but it begins as early as Genesis chapter 2. First book of the Bible, page or so in. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What a great, wonderful, loving act. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, God, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided became four rivers. Look now in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and to keep it. Everything was beautiful and good. Everything that they needed was provided. God provided everything that Adam and Eve needed to live and thrive. He gave them just one command. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. However, as we see in chapter 3, 
continue with me in chapter 3, verse 5. Satan came to tempt them, so to cause them to rebel against their father. For Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Just like the selfish son, they too wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the one who makes decisions. They too sold their land and went to live in a reckless, and circumstances and personal choices led them to destitution and to death. We are all familiar with this ending as they rebelled and fell into sin. And sin into death and death judgment. But before you judge our first parents and the selfish son too harshly, let us remember that you and I are also self-seeking. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. For it's easy for us to point our finger, as the religious leaders would do, at other people's. Look at that selfish son. Even today we can look at, oh, if I was Adam and Eve, I would make a different choice than they would. I can't believe they did that. But you and I find ourselves in the mirror of Scripture in Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 10. For he says that it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. What an imagery there. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is he speaking of? Is it just Hitler, Stalin? Is it just the Attila Huns, the murderers, the Jack the Rippers? Speaking of everyone. Speaking of you and I, he's speaking of my grandson Landon, who's as close to perfection as I know it. That's a joke. You see, Paul tells us that one day there's going to be a reckoning for you and I. Turn to Romans chapter 2, just a few chapters back. You see, you and I stand in the same place as this selfish son, as our first parents. We too have been willing to sell all we have to rebel against our Father. Romans chapter 2 verse 6 says that one day God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, for those who are like the selfish son, for those who are like Adam Eve that seek to be God and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Just as the selfish son found himself destitute, as our first parents found themselves cast out from the garden, facing death and sin, so are you and I. Fortunately, though, story does not end there. With the prodigal son, with Adam and Eve, 
can with us. For there's a gospel, there is good news that awaits those that are like that. And you and I are going to spend the next two weeks examining the rest of this parable to understand the heart of God towards the lost, the undesirables, the outcast. We're going to see how God pursued Adam and Eve, how He pursues the selfish son, and how He pursues you and I and those that have rebelled against Him. For you and I must be reminded that such were some of you and I. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11, through 11, it's a portion of Scripture that is of much debate today. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Very strong words. And to be honest, each and every one of us fall under one of those designations. And he says, and such were some of you. You were those people who were not inheriting the kingdom of God. But, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And God's people said, Amen. That is an amen moment. For such were some of us. And that's the good news that you and I are to share. We're not to be like the religious leaders who would rather wash these people away and say, you know what, let's not have anything to do with them. Let it never be said of God's people that we've hardened our heart against the very same people that were once like us, or that we were once like. I want to bring this to a close. Here's several things I want you to consider today about the selfish son as we go into this week. One, are you still in rebellion against the Father? Have you come to Him yet? Or are you out there still feeding the pigs, living a life leading to death and destruction? If so, then would you come to Him? Would you see that the path, the choices that you're making, squandering your life and recklessly living, is going to lead to death, judgment, and destruction? Would you come to this morning? To do so just says, you know what, I repent of dead works. I recognize that there's no good in myself. I cannot earn God's favor. And say, I will trust that Jesus has done it for me, and that God has declared me righteous because of what Jesus has done. That's all you have to do. You just say, Lord, I accept that, and I'm going to trust Him, and I want to follow you. If that's you today, would you please do that? The second point, if you were once in rebellion yourself, as I was, but now you're restored like I am, do you not want to warn your family, your friends, your co-workers, and your neighbors about going down the same path of destruction? If you were that selfish son who finally will be redeemed, you know the story, so I'll give it out. Would you not say, hey, this path is wrong? Don't do what I did. Isn't that always funny, you know, uh, children do that. Well, you did this, Mom. You did that, Dad. 
Yeah, well, look what it got me. Parents, when your kids ask you those questions, show them, yes, I did. Reckless living, but here, be honest. This is how it's cost me. This is what's changed about my life. And if you're here today and you've been restored, maybe you're still struggling getting your life back together, but still do you not want to warn those that you love about the path they're taking? And then thirdly, is your heart like the religious leaders? Have you hardened your heart towards those that need the gospel? So repent. And would you commit again this morning to share that message of reconciliation with those that are on the wrong path. Let's not be like the religious leaders. We were all once the selfish son. Maybe you are today. But let me tell you, reconciliation is there for those that God draws him. If you hear his voice, respond to him this morning. I'm going to ask for you just to close your eyes and bow your heads. Maybe take a moment. You can open your eyes if you're going to do this. Maybe write a few notes about the message. Pray, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? And you say, Father, give me your heart. Give me your wisdom. Maybe it's a prayer of gratitude. Maybe it's a prayer that says, Lord, I just need to confess. How is God calling you to respond this morning to his word? Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. Lord, this is a powerful, powerful parable. It's more than just a simple story that we read and say, oh, here is a moral lesson of caution. Now, this is the history of every man, woman, and child. And Father, we have all been down this path. We are all guilty of rebellion. But Lord, you have, you have, you have brought us to yourself. If there's any here that have not, Lord, I pray that you begin drawing them today and that they would respond, yes, Lord, I submit to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, for there's others that we need to begin, begin sharing with others. Our hearts have been too hardened. Lord, give us a love, a compassion for others. Help us to get through the barriers of fear, of fear of rejection or ridicule, or just the other things that prevent us from loving others and sharing that message. Give us warm hearts to all that we might meet. We pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.